Book Three, Sections Fifteen through Sixteen of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Three: The Henchmen of King Cole, Section Fifteen. Percy Harrigan was known to Hal, as a college boy is known to his classmates. He was not brutal, like his grim old father, he was merely self-indulgent, as one who had always had everything. He was weak, as one who had never had to take a bold resolve. He had been brought up by the women of the family, to be a part of what they called society, in which process he had been given high notions of his own importance. The life of the Harrigans was dominated by one painful memory, that of a peddler's pack, and Hal knew that Percy's most urgent purpose was to be regarded as a real and true and free-handed aristocrat. It was this knowledge Hal was using in his attack. He began with apologies, attempting to soothe the other's anger. He had not meant to make a scene like this. It was the gunman who had forced it, putting his life in danger. It was the very devil, being chased about at night and shot at. He had lost his nerve, really. He had forgot what little manners he had been able to keep as a miner's buddy. He had made a spectacle of himself. Good Lord, yes, he realized how he must seem. And Hal looked at his dirty miner's jumpers, and then at Percy. He could see that Percy was in hearty agreement thus far. He had, indeed, made a spectacle of himself, and of Percy, too. Hal was sorry about this latter, but here they were, in a pickle, and it was certainly too late now. This story was out. There could be no suppressing it. Hal might sit down on his reporter friend, Percy might sit down on the waiters and the conductor and the camp-marshal and the gunmen, but he could not possibly sit down on all his friends. They would talk about nothing else for weeks. The story would be all over Western City in a day. This amazing, melodramatic, ten-twenty-thirty story of a miner's buddy in the private car of the Coal King's son. "'And you must see, Percy,' Hal went on, "'it's the sort of thing that sticks to a man.' It's the thing by which everybody will form their idea of you as long as you live. "'I'll take my chances with my friend's criticism,' said the other, with some attempt at the Harrigan manner. "'You can make it whichever kind of story you choose,' continued Hal, implacably. "'The world will say, he decided for the dollars, or it will say, he decided for the lives.' "'Surely, Percy, your family doesn't need those particular dollars so badly. "'Why, you've spent more on this one train trip.' "'And Hal waited to give his victim time to calculate. "'The result of the thinking was a question worthy of old Peter. "'What are you getting out of this?' "'Percy,' said Hal, "'you must know I'm getting nothing. "'If you can't understand it otherwise,' Say to yourself that you are dealing with a man who's irresponsible. I've seen so many terrible things. I've been chased around so much by camp-marshals. Why, Percy, that man Cotton has six notches on his gun. I'm simply crazy. 
and into the brown eyes of this miner's buddy came a look wild enough to convince a stronger man than Percy Harrigan. "'I've got just one idea left in the world, Percy, to save those miners. You make a mistake unless you realize how desperate I am. So far I've done this thing incog. I've been Joe Smith, a miner's buddy. If I'd come out and told my real name, well, maybe I wouldn't have made them open the mine, but at least I'd have made a lot of trouble for the GFC. But I didn't do it. I knew what a scandal it would make, and there was something I owed my father. But if I see there's no other way, if it's a question of letting those people perish, I'll throw everything else to the winds. Tell your father that. Tell him I threatened to turn this man Keating loose and blow the thing wide open, denounce the company, appeal to the governor, raise a disturbance and get arrested on the street if necessary, in order to force the facts before the public. You see, I've got the facts, Percy. I've been there and seen with my own eyes. Can't you realize that? The other did not answer, but it was evident that he realized. On the other hand, see how you can fix it if you choose. You were on a pleasure trip when you heard of this disaster. You rushed up and took command. You opened the mine. You saved the lives of your employees. That is the way the papers will handle it. Hal, watching his victim intently, and groping for the path to his mind, perceived that he had gone wrong. Crude as the Harrigans were, they had learned that it is not aristocratic to be picturesque. "'All right, then,' said Hal, quickly. "'If you prefer, you needn't be mentioned. The bosses up at the camp have the reporters under their thumbs. They'll handle the story any way you want it. The one thing I care about is that you run your car up and see the mine opened. Won't you do it, Percy?' Hal was gazing into the other's eyes, knowing that life and death for the miners hung upon his nod. "'Well, what is the answer?' "'How!' exclaimed Percy. "'My old man will give me hell.' "'All right, but on the other hand, I'll give you hell, and which will be worse?' Again there was a silence. "'Come along, Percy, for God's sake!' And Hal's tone was desperate, alarming and suddenly the other gave way. All right. Hal drew a breath. But mind you, he added, you're not going up there to let them fool you. They'll try to bluff you out. They may go as far as to refuse to obey you. But you must stand by your guns, for, you see, I'm going along. I'm going to see that mine open. I'll never quit till the rescuers have gone down. Will they go, Hal? Will they go? Good God, man, they're clamoring for the chance to go. They've almost been rioting for it. I'll go with them, and you too, Percy, the whole crowd of us idlers will go. When we come out, we'll know something about the business of coal mining. All right, I'm with you, said the Coal King's son. End of section 15 Section 16 Hal never knew what Percy said to Cartwright that night. He only knew that when they arrived at the mine, the superintendent was summoned to a consultation, and half an hour later Percy emerged smiling, 
with the announcement that Hal Warner had been mistaken all along. The mine authorities had been making all possible haste to get the fan ready, with the intention of opening the mine at the earliest moment. The work was now completed, and in an hour or two the fan was to be started, and by morning there would be a chance of rescuers getting in. Percy said this so innocently that for a moment Hal wondered if Percy himself might not believe it. Hal's position as guest, of course, required that he should graciously pretend to believe it, consenting to appear as a fool before the rest of the company. Percy invited Hal and Billy Keating to spend the night in the train, but this Hal declined. He was too dirty, he said. Besides, he wanted to be up at daylight, to be one of the first to go down the shaft. Percy answered that the superintendent had vetoed this proposition. He did not want anyone to go down but experienced men, who could take care of themselves. When there were so many on hand ready and eager to go, there was no need to imperil the lives of amateurs. At the risk of seeming ungracious, Hal declared that he would hang around and see them take the cover off the pit-mouth. There were mourning parties in some of the cabins, where women were gathered together who could not sleep, and it would be an act of charity to take them the good news. Hal and Keating set out. They went first to the Rafferty's, and saw Mrs. Rafferty spring up and stare at them, and then scream aloud to the Holy Virgin, waking all the little Rafferty's to frightened clamor. When the woman had made sure that they really knew what they were talking about, she rushed out to spread the news, and so pretty soon the streets were alive with hurrying figures, and a crowd gathered once more at the pit-mouth. Hal and Keating went on to Jerry Minetti's. Out of a sense of loyalty to Percy, Hal did no more than repeat Percy's own announcement that it had been Cartwright's intention all along to have the mine opened. It was funny to see the effect of this statement, the face with which Jerry looked at Hal. But they wasted no time in discussion. Jerry slipped into his clothes and hurried with them to the pit-mouth. Sure enough, a gang was already tearing off the boards and canvas. Never since Hal had been in North Valley had he seen men working with such a will. Soon the great fan began to stir, and then to roar, and then to sing, and there was a crowd of a hundred people, roaring and singing also. It would be some hours before anything more could be done, and suddenly Hal realized that he was exhausted. He and Billy Keating went back to the Minetti cabin, and spreading themselves a blanket on the floor, lay down with sighs of relief. As for Billy, he was soon snoring, but to Hal there came sudden reaction from all the excitement, and sleep was far from him. An ocean of thoughts came flooding into his mind. The world outside, his world, which he had banished deliberately for several months, and which he had so suddenly been compelled to remember. It had seemed so simple what he had set out to do that summer to take another name, to become a member of another class, to live its life and think its thoughts, 
and then come back to his own world with a new and fascinating adventure to tell about. The possibility that his own world, the world of Hal Warner, might find him out as Joe Smith, the miner's buddy, that was a possibility which had never come to his mind. He was like a burglar, working away at a job in darkness, and suddenly finding the room flooded with light. He had gone into the adventure, prepared to find things that would shock him. He had known that somehow, somewhere, he would have to fight the system, but he had never expected to find himself in the thick of the class war, leading a charge upon the trenches of his own associates. Nor was this the end, he knew. This war would not be settled by the winning of a trench. Lying here in the darkness and silence, Hal was realizing what he had got himself in for. To employ another simile, he was a man who begins a flirtation on the street and wakes up next morning to find himself married. It was not that he had regrets for the course he had taken with Percy. No other course had been thinkable. But while Hal had known these North Valley people for ten weeks, he had known the occupants of Percy's car for as many years. So these latter personalities loomed large in his consciousness, and here in the darkness their thoughts about him, whether actively hostile or passively astonished, laid siege to the defenses of his mind. Particularly he found himself wrestling with Jessie Arthur. Her face rose up before him, appealing, yearning. She had one of those perfect faces which irresistibly compel the soul of a man. Her brown eyes, soft and shining, full of tenderness, her lips, quick to tremble with emotion, her skin like apple blossoms, her hair with stardust in it. Hal was cynical enough about coal operators and mine guards, but it never occurred to him that Jessie's soul might be anything but what these bodily charms implied. He was in love with her, and he was too young, too inexperienced in love, to realize that underneath the sweetness of girlhood, so genuine and so lovable, might lie deep, unconscious cruelty, inherited and instinctive, the cruelty of caste, the hardness of worldly prejudice. A man has to come to middle age, and to suffer much, before he understands that the charms of women, those rare and magical perfections of eyes and teeth and hair, that softness of skin and delicacy of feature, have cost labor and care of many generations, and imply inevitably that life has been feral, that customs and conventions have been murderous and inhuman. Jessie had failed Hal in his desperate emergency. But now he went over the scene, and told himself that the test had been an unfair one. He had known her since childhood, and loved her, and never before had he seen an act or heard a word that was not gracious and kind. But, so he told himself, she gave her sympathy to those she knew, and what chance had she ever had to know working people? He must give her the chance. He must compel her, even against her will, to broaden her understanding of life. 
The process might hurt her, it might mar the unlined softness of her face, but nevertheless it would be good for her. It would be a growing pain. So, lying there in the darkness and silence, Hal found himself absorbed in long conversation with his sweetheart. He escorted her about the camp, explaining things to her, introducing her to this one and that. He took others of his private car friends and introduced them to his North Valley friends. There were individuals who had qualities in common, and would surely hit it off. Bob Creston, for example, who was good at a song and dance. He would surely be interested in Blinky, the vaudeville specialist of the camp. Mrs. Curtis, who liked cats, would find a bond of sisterhood with old Mrs. Nagel, who lived next door to the Minettis and kept five. And even Vivie Cass, who hated men who ate with their knives, she would be driven to murder by the table manners of Reminitsky's boarders, but she would take delight in Dago Charlie, the tobacco-chewing mule which had once been Hal's pet. Hal could hardly wait for daylight to come, so that he might begin these efforts at social amalgamation. End of section 16